Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have seen fit to allow us to gather together again this morning. We thank you for this time that we get to spend uh, with friends and family and people that we love. Uh, But most of all, God, we thank you that we get to spend this time with you in your presence. And we know that you are with us always, but we also believe that you are with us in a special way when we're gathered in your name, in your house. And so I pray, God, that you would uh, fill this room with your spirit. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. I pray now that as we turn to your word, that you would uh, convict those who need to be convicted. I pray that you would encourage those who need to be encouraged. I pray that you would do what only the living God can do. I pray that you would open our eyes, ears, and hearts to receive what it is that you have for us this morning. Uh, And and as I ask so often, God, I pray, uh, despite my shortcomings, the beauty of your gospel would be proclaimed clearly in these moments. We are lost without you. Thank you for loving us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 If you're still up, you can be seated. Uh, It's wonderful to be back with you. Uh, Well, I guess I've been with you the whole way, but uh, it's been a little bit since since I've preached. And so it's um, it's wonderful to be back with you this morning. Uh, I just, before I read the text, I just want to share this. Uh, I don't even know what the point of me sharing it is. I just want you to know my heart. I spent a lot of time this week thinking about what happened in Texas and thinking about if I needed to preach a specific message, uh, uh, like on the problem of evil and how do we walk through suffering. And uh, I just, I wasn't ready to do it. And so uh, I was really struck by what happened this week. Um, You know, I I was thinking about why, and I I mentioned this earlier, uh, you know, when Sandy Hook happened 10 years ago, I just had two very little children. And I had never uh, been to a school drop-off. I had never sent my kids to school. I had never been to a school play or a school concert choir or the Halloween parade. And uh, I had never known the joy of sending my kids away for seven hours a day and, and, and trusting that they're going to be safe and cared for and taken care of in those hours that they're away from me. And uh, as I said earlier, I've got three children who are in elementary school and just, uh, I'm really, I really had a hard time this week with what happened. And so um, (laughs) I took, in seminary, I had to take three classes of systematic theology. And in the last systematic theology three, the last class of the semester, you go through like every doctrine in the Bible, the last class was the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. And my professor, who was a wonderful man, he started off that class by saying, we can do this pretty quickly. There's no good answer for the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. Now we can talk a lot about it in relationship to who God is and the hope that we find in him. Um, But even Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend. And so uh, I'm hopeful because this is how God's work, God's word works. I'm hopeful that what I have prepared for this morning might in some small way offer some encouragement uh, and perspective on all this garbage that's going on in our world right now. So with that, we're in Mark today, uh, Mark chapter 12. I'm gonna be reading verses 18 through 27. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. 
And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was the spring of 2015, and I was driving between meetings uh, for my job, and I got a call from my business partner. Uh, He was someone that I spoke with virtually every day, and so I knew as soon as uh, he started talking that something was wrong. Uh, He went on to tell me that one of uh, our best clients, someone that he had been actually very close with personally, uh, had been killed that morning. Uh, Details weren't, we didn't know all the details in that moment, but he had been in a car accident. And as the details came out uh, over the following number of days, uh, it turns out it had been on on a secondary highway. Uh, He'd been on his way to work and he had veered across the center lane. Uh, The authorities thought he was reaching for something that he dropped. It wasn't his phone that was in his his briefcase in the back seat. Uh, And he hit a car head on and he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Uh, and he was killed instantly. It was tragic. Uh, he was a relatively young man. He was a handsome, young wife, two young children, a successful career in the investment world, uh, well-liked, well-respected in the community. And I didn't know him uh, really well, but I knew him well enough and spent enough time with him to, to know, I don't know where he stood with God, uh, but I knew God and faith weren't big parts of his life. Uh, and I also knew him well enough that I felt like I wanted to, to go to his uh, memorial service. And so I did. And uh, at that time, I hadn't been to a lot of funerals. And so I was a little bit surprised to find out, kind of knowing or, or thinking I knew where he stood with God, uh, that the service was going to be in a church. And uh, he wasn't a church guy. I am a church guy. And so I looked up the church it was going to be at before we went. And from everything I could tell, it seemed like a really solid uh, Bible preaching a gospel proclaiming church. And so I went to that memorial service and it was one of the saddest, it was one of the saddest services I've ever been at. Uh, I thought the pastor did a fantastic job given the circumstances of eulogizing this man who he didn't know and presenting the hope of the gospel in a, in a really sad situation. Uh, but the overarching theme of that service. Uh, You know, there was a, obviously there was like a slideshow, there was some videos, uh, there were friends who gave remembrances, there was family who gave remembrances. The overwhelming theme of that service was his boat. How much he loved his boat. How he was happiest on his boat. How the, the best memories, how he, what he most looked forward to, how, how his, his happiest times were on his boat. What was so interesting, I thought, about that service 
was um, how this man, who again, was it like, I knew him a little bit. He was not a, he was a fine guy. He just, he wasn't a, wasn't a man of faith. Uh, I just thought it was so interesting that when death came knocking, all of a sudden they wanted to have the service in a church. And that's not just true for them. I'm not knocking this family. That you see that, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm a pastor. I see this time and time and time again. Isn't it amazing, really, how we can spend our lifetimes running from God, ignoring God, pushing back against God, but then when death enters into the picture, all of a sudden we're looking for God. And now we're interested in God. And now we're looking to go to the place we didn't want to ever want to go, you know, when things were good and fine and, and everything was, was hunky-dory. Isn't it funny how death can turn people who didn't want anything to do with God, all of a sudden now they're looking towards God. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's been a few weeks since I preached. And so a little, bit, a little part of me feels a little bit sad, not sad. A little part of me felt bad this week preparing this message that it's basically a, a, like, this is kind of a funeral message today. And, um, you know, it's not a happy, like, rah, rah, go get them sermon. But uh, the more I th thought about it and the more I sat with it and the more I think about the power of God's word, the more I was like, actually, I think that's okay. Because we need to hear funeral messages sometimes. And some of us don't hear them that often. Some of us have heard more than we should have and more than we needed to. Uh, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I use it at virtually every funeral service I do. Uh, chapter se Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2, I'm just paraphrasing here. But basically what it says is it's better to go to a funeral than a party. And that's kind of a funny verse, right? It's kind of like I talked about at our celebration, uh, celebration service. Because most of us are like, would rather go to a party than a funeral. But here's Solomon in Ecclesiastes saying, actually, it's better to go to a funeral than a party. And that's because we are all going to face death at some point. I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm not trying to be dark. I'm not trying to be depressing. It's just a fact of life. We are all going to have to face death. And it is good for us to think about that moment and to think about what that means and to figure out now before it's too late what we believe about what happens after we die. I have some sad news. Well, this, you're like, Gary, this has all been sad. Uh, I have some sad news, not for you, for me. And I, that is that I turned 40 this week. And so, so I've been... That is not something to celebrate. So I've been thinking a lot about this stuff lately because it feels like pretty much my life is ending this week. I know it's not, but it feels like it. I was lamenting this to a friend a few weeks ago, uh, several weeks ago, uh, who's a year or two ahead of me. And so he's already been through it. And he was like, you got to read this book. Uh, and he sent it to me. And so I started reading it. The book is called The Seasons of a Man's Life. It's by a psychologist at Yale. It was written back in the 70s. And it is not a Christian book by any stretch of the imagination. But from what I understand, it was kind of a groundbreaking research project into the, um, the seasons, that, the uh, eras of development in adulthood for males. I think he wrote one for women too. I haven't read that one. Uh, there's been a ton of study, ton of research on uh, development is in children and adolescence. But up until that point, there'd been very little uh, study and, and research done on the development of adults. And uh, basically the premise of the book is that there is a huge shift in a man's life between the ages of 40 and 45. And that's pretty much consistent across whatever stage of like socioeconomic status, job, all that stuff. And so like it actually is speaking into a lot of 
the way I'm feeling right now. But I want to read you one quote from that book. Uh, And in this quote, the author, Daniel Levinson, he's talking about the last stage of a man's life. Just listen to what he says. This is from the seasons of a man's life. He says, what does development mean at the very end of the life cycle? It means that a man is coming to terms with the process of dying and preparing for his own death. At the end of all previous eras, part of the developmental work was to start a new era to create a new basis for living. A man in his 80s knows that his death is imminent. It may come in a few months or in 20 years, but he lives in its shadow and at its call. To be able to invest himself in living, he must make his peace with dying. If he believes in the immortality of the soul, he must prepare himself for some kind of afterlife. He lives in its shadow and at its call. To be able to invest himself in living, he must make his peace with dying. And as I was reading that uh, this past week, I was like, that is not just true for a man in his 80s. That is true for every single one of us. I don't care if you're 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 80, 90, I don't care if you're 100. We are all living in the shadow of death. And in order to live well, we must make peace with that fact and understand what we believe about what happens when we die. Gary, thank you for this uplifting message this morning. (laughs) You are welcome. And so the fortunate thing for us this morning is that's exactly what our text is about this morning. So we're continuing in this series. I have said that probably 40 times over the last year that we're calling Let's Go. We're doing a full length study of the gospel of Mark. And as I said uh, a number of weeks ago, I think the last time I preached, we are going to finish this gospel if it is the last thing we do. We're get, and we're close. We're getting, we're, the, the end is in sight. So uh, we're continuing in the gospel of, of Mark, this series that we're calling Let's Go. And it's been a while since we were here. So I just want to remind us of the context as we enter into Mark chapter 12, where we're at right now. Jesus has spent most of the gospel in the region of Galilee with his disciples traveling around, preaching the message of the kingdom of God. In the middle part of the book, he and his disciples have been on the road to Jerusalem. Last chapter, chapter 11, they arrived in Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, entered to the city with the, to the adulation of the crowds. The, the religious leaders, the authorities, the political leaders in Jerusalem have now started to come after him because it was like, it's one thing when you're up in the boondocks of Galilee saying this stuff, but if you're going to come in here to Jerusalem, you're going to find some opposition. And so the last passage we studied, which was three or four weeks ago, the Pharisees come to him with a question about taxation and he shuts them down. This week we get the Sadducees. Next week we get the scribes. Those are like the three big parties. They're all coming at Jesus and they're coming at him with questions to discredit him and to prove that he is not who he says he is. This week it is the Sadducees and they come asking a question, this kind of weird, weird question. We'll get into it in a minute about marriage and what does that mean in the afterlife. And for those of you who have been tracking with us for a little while here at Abundant Life and have heard me preach a number of times, you will know that one of my favorite things to do when we come to a passage of scripture is to say something like this. I'll say, it seems like this is about X, but really it's about Y. And so as we come to this passage this morning, it seems like this passage is about the resurrection and the afterlife. But what it's really about is the resurrection and the afterlife. It's just take it at face value. And so we're going to talk today about what happens when we die and what Jesus has to say about what happens when we die. And we're going to draw out three truths, I think, I hope, uh, from these, these verses as we study them today. And the first one is this. According to Jesus, 
The resurrection is real. The resurrection is real. So the setup for this story, and we get a little bit of a commentary from Mark as he sets it up for us, is the Sadducees are coming to Jesus and they're questioning him about the resurrection. Now the Sadducees, they're mentioned in the other gospels. Uh, This is the only place in Mark that we run into the Sadducees. They were like the elite class of Jewish, of the Jewish ruling class. They were wealthy, they were powerful. We're not exactly sure, but historians believe that uh, up to half of the high priests in Jesus' time came from the Sadducee party. They were very well connected. They were the political and religious leaders in Jerusalem at this time, very closely connected to the temple. They're often played over and against the Pharisees. Uh, the, the Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, were very political. So they were very tied in with Rome, and that's partly why they had so much power. But unlike the Pharisees, they were very conservative in their theology. So the Pharisees believed in the written law, and we've talked about this before, I don't expect you to remember it, and they also adhered to the oral law or tradition. And they held them as being equal. The Sadducees did not buy that. They said it's only the written law, only the Torah, only the law of Moses. And because of that, they did not believe in the afterlife. And we can give them a little bit of slack because if you know the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, it doesn't talk about the afterlife that much. It doesn't talk that much about what happens when we die. And actually that's true for the Old Testament in general, but that's a different sermon for a different day. So the Sadducees, very conservative, only what's in the written law, they don't believe that there's an afterlife. They know that Jesus, or they, they hear that Jesus is talking about there is. And so they come to him and they're like, we're gonna, we're gonna trap him. We're gonna ask him another question that he can't answer and we're gonna, and we're gonna get him. And so they come up with this crazy Rube Goldberg question. Right? They just, um, there was this thing that, that Moses, that God through Moses uh, gave to the Israelites. It was called leveret marriage, and it's exactly what they describe here. So it comes from the Old Testament. If a, if a, if a husband died and his wife had not had children, uh, to be a widow at that time, it wasn't a death sentence, but it was almost certainly you were headed for poverty, no protection, and obviously no continuation of the family line. And so God had provided, if, if a husband dies and his wife is childless, that husband's brother was supposed to become her husband. And it helped keep her from being a, an unprotected widow, and it helped uh, continue the family line. And so here come the Sadducees, and they're like, well, what happens when it's seven times? and no one has a child, what happens in the afterlife? And it's disingenuous, right? Because they don't believe in the afterlife anyway. And so they're just trying to present this, um, this, this ideologically crazy scenario to Jesus. And they're like, you know, kind of see how he gets out of this one. You can almost see them snickering as they, as they ask the question. You know, uh, I gotta be careful of the movies I reference. I got another one later. You know, the scene in Dumb and Dumber when they put the hot sauce on the burger and they're like, how's your burger? <laughs> That's kind of what the Sadducees are doing here. Like, what happens in the afterlife? <laughs> and Jesus is like, don't even play. Like, don't, don't, even, don't, even, don't even go there. Because, and he just shuts them down. Meet me in verse, 40, uh, verse 24. Jesus says to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? The Greek word for wrong there is planeo, which is the word we get for planet, the word we get planet from. It means to wander astray or to be off track. And so he's like, he's like, here's the truth. You guys are playing out here, right? This is the reason you're wrong. And then he says this, 
You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And that's literally like hitting them right between the eyes because they thought they were all over the scriptures and they were the most powerful people in Jerusalem. And so they thought they owned God's power. He's like, you don't know the scriptures or God's power. Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Do you notice how he makes a defense for the resurrection? He doesn't. He just says, when they rise. He just takes it for granted. He doesn't feel the need to, to explain to them, well, actually, here's how it works. And he just says, when they rise. For Jesus, the resurrection was a given. It wasn't even worth debating. It was just, he treated it as if it was common knowledge. Amen. The resurrection is real. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, there was a, there's a famous basketball player named Kyrie Irving. And... Some of you think I might be, I'm going to talk about a three-pointer he hit in the 2016 finals, but that's not where I'm going today. A couple years after that, uh, he was doing an interview. I think it was a podcast, actually. And he said on that podcast that he believed the earth was flat. You can laugh. He, he said that he believed the earth is flat. He said that he believes that scientists are lying to us. He said, There's no, there actually are no real pictures of the, of the earth, so how could we even know? And he said he believed that the earth is flat. And some of you might remember this. Others of you can probably imagine what the response was. <laughs> he was obliterated. I mean, just, just the, like he was just, he was publicly like annihilated. Why? Because it's like since 500 B.C., for like 2,500 years, it has just been considered common knowledge that the world is round. It's, not, it's just something we take for granted. It's not something that we feel like we even need to debate because it's just, it's just understood to be the case. And, and that's the way Jesus treats the resurrection in this passage in his interaction with the Sadducees. They're coming at him like, hey, you know, we got a trick question for you. And he's like, I'm not even gonna rise to that challenge because... It's just, a, it's just taken for granted that there's an afterlife, that there's a resurrection. And so if Jesus takes it for granted, we as his followers, we can just go ahead and do the same thing. We can just take for granted that there's an afterlife. And this is, a, that, that's a negative way of saying it. This is one of the central tenets of Christian theology. This is one of the central tenets of what it means to be a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. We believe that this body is mortal, but that this soul is not and that after we die out of this world, Jesus, God in his power, raises us back to new life and a new body and the soul continues. And so in light of that, we need to figure out now, here's Jesus saying the afterlife, the resurrection is just a, a, a given. For those of us here who are sitting in the shadow of death, for those of us who have to make peace with dying in order for us to live, we cannot wait too long to figure out, do we agree with that or not? Do we believe that or not? And, and I don't say a lot of things like just really boldly. You know, I'm kind of, I know, kind of self-depreciating, Pastor Gary. The resurrection is real. There is, this is not all there is. And what we do in this life matters for eternity. The resurrection is real. Okay, that's the first thing. Here's the second thing I want us to draw out of this passage. Uh, the resurrection is real. And number two, things are different in the resurrection. Things are different in the resurrection. And this is what we get out of verse 25. Let me just read it again. 
Jesus says to them, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. What is he saying there? He's saying, whatever conception you have of the afterlife. Now, the Sadducees didn't believe in it, and so they didn't have one, but they were coming to Jesus uh, under the impression that he and others who believed in a resurrection, uh, it was just some kind of continuation of what, was, what this life was. It was just a, what things looked like in this life, whoever you were married to in this life, wherever you lived in this life, whatever you did in this life, the afterlife, the resurrection was some kind of continuation of that life. And Jesus, again, he just shuts him down and he's like, nope, you're wrong. That's not how it works. And what he is saying at the most basic level in verse 25 is the way things look right now is not the way things are going to look in the resurrection. And there's a lot of other scripture that backs that up. So listen to the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. What's he saying? It'll look a little bit the same, but it's going to be different. We're going to have bodies, and they're not going to be the same ones we had here. Going on, this is what John says, two, two passages out of Revelation. Revelation 7, 15 to 17. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So it's gonna be similar, but we're not gonna be hungry. We're not gonna be thirsty. We're not gonna get hot from the sun. We're not gonna get cold from whatever, the Arctic. Every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. Revelation 21, one through four, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I don't feel like I really need to exegete it, but what's it saying? Things are gonna be different. Things are different in the resurrection. It's not the same way it is here. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in verse 25 when he says, you're wrong. There isn't marriage in the resurrection. Now, some of us hear that. This is a hard verse for some people. Some of us it's, a, it's, a, it's an exciting verse for other people, right? Some of us, some of us, not, some of us are like, all right, <laughs> no marriage in the, in the resurrection. But others of us, and, and I would put myself in this camp, I don't like this verse. Because part of the reason that I asked Beth to marry me 17 years ago, no, 18, 17 and a half years ago, is because I came to a point where I couldn't imagine my life without her. And I still feel that way. And so when I read a verse like this and I'm like, I know heaven's supposed to be better and I know like no crying, no tears, you know, no death, that's awesome. Not gonna be hot, not gonna be cold, not gonna be hungry, not gonna be thirsty. But I wanna do it with Beth. And so like, that makes me sad. 
but that is the very reason I know I don't need to be sad about it. Because we're not going to be sad in heaven. And so, so the reason we love this place is because sometimes it reminds us of heaven. And in heaven, it's going to be perfect. And so really what I want us to see is that this verse, I think, and this is a sermon for another day, I think it's more a commentary on the institution and sacrament of marriage than it is on the resurrection. And in some way, Jesus is saying in this verse, there is a purpose for marriage in this life. There's a need for it. God has a plan for it that isn't necessary in the resurrection. I believe that, I believe that, that in, in heaven, in the resurrection, uh, those of us who are in Jesus, and we'll come to that again, and we'll come to that in a minute, we're going to be embodied, we're going we're gonna to live and play, and we're going to work, and, but it's not going to be painful and hard, it's going to be beautiful and fulfilling, and I believe we're going to have relationships, and I just believe in some way I'm still going to know Beth. I don't know, I don't know what that's going to be like, I don't think it's going to, we're not going to be disembodied angels on clouds playing harps, because that sounds boring. And heaven is going gonna, it's, it's gonna to be perfect. It's going to be different. Things are going to be different in the resurrection. And for all of us right now who are like, well, that makes me, like me, who are like, that makes me a little bit sad to think that things are going to be different. And my relationship with my spouse might be different in the resurrection. Can we just pause and look at the other side of that coin for a moment and just say, thank you, Jesus, that things are going to be different in the resurrection. Thank you, God, that this is not the way it is always going to be. I, I, I know I sound a little bit like a broken record, but it's just, I'm feeling some kind of way about it. I've thought so much about those families in Uvalde, Texas this week and the, the, the horror that they are walking through. And some of you here know that pain of losing a child. And, and I do not know any other hope to give them except the hope that one day this will not be the way it is except the hope that one day in the resurrection, things will be different. I do not know of any other hope except the hope that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that one day every wrong will be righted, that everything crooked will be made straight, that light will be brought to every dark place, and that one day life will be brought out of death. That is, that is, the, that is, that is the promise of God's word, and it is literally the only hope I know to cling to in these moments things will be different in the resurrection. And can we just thank God for that? So. The resurrection is real. Things will be different in the resurrection. And the last thing I want us to see is this. Uh, the Sadducees were confused. They thought the resurrection was uh, a, like an idea. They thought it was an event. They thought it was a theological point to argue. And actually the resurrection, I mean, it is those things, but it's more than that. The resurrection is a person. Yep. Jesus is the resurrection. And so just continuing in the passage, verse 26, this is where Jesus, what Jesus says. He says, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, you are quite wrong. There's that same word again. You are, he's like, you are, you are really wrong about this. And I always wondered, like, like, how does this prove his point? 
This is, a, this is actually like a, a very well-known rabbinical uh, teaching method that Jesus uses here where he defends scripture by scripture. And uh, I love when he says this. So they didn't have chapters and verses back then. So he couldn't say Exodus 3, verse 6. That's where it is, Exodus 3, verse 6. But he says, you know, in the book of Moses, in that part where he meets with the bush, he says how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And here's what he's getting at. You know what he's saying? He's saying, all right, Sadducees, you and I both know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for a long time. And, and we also know that when Moses met with God at the burning bush, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had still been dead for a long time. And yet God doesn't tell Moses, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He tells Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what is the natural conclusion that we must make from that statement? They're still alive. He, he says he's the God of the living because he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the reason God can say that is because he is the God who has the power to raise someone from death to life. And what is so poignant and profound about this passage that we are looking at, which if you're just reading it, like you might just skip right over it. What is so poignant and profound about this passage is this. The Sadducees thought that they were arguing a theological point they didn't recognize that the resurrection was embodied in a person and they were talking to him in the moment. John chapter 11, the one we talked about a little bit earlier. What does Jesus say to Martha when he comes to her house? John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He was saying to the Sadducees in that moment, I am the living God. Do you believe this? And what is so powerful is that just a few days later, he wouldn't just talk about it, but early Sunday morning, he would get up, take off, of his, bur take off his burial clothes, fold them neatly, place them where he was laying, and walk out of the tomb because Jesus is the resurrection. It's not just an idea. It's not just an event. It's a person. And they were talking to him and they couldn't see it. They were looking in the eyes of the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. And all they could do was argue about whose wife someone was gonna be if all her husbands died. They missed it and he was right in front of him. Uh, I mentioned this earlier because I knew this was coming. I spent hours this week trying to think of a different illustration I could use in this moment, but I just kept coming back to this one because it was so perfect. I know you all think I'm like this crazy movie watcher. I really don't watch that many movies. Maybe, I guess when I was younger, I did. Uh, but there was a movie, and I have to be really careful as a pastor, keeping it really real, keeping it really raw with you all here. You gotta be really careful using illustrations from movies that you don't believe your people should watch, right? But... So I am not advocating you watch this movie. I shouldn't have, but I was young and stupid. Uh, there was a movie when I was growing up, very popular, called The Usual Suspects. And uh, someone else has seen it. All right, we'll pray for you. Not a God-honoring movie. Not a, not a holy, not a encouraging, building up movie. But the premise of that movie is that there is this like horrible crime syndicate uh, and 
they're, they're committing these crimes and the police and detectives get one of the really low-level guys who's just like this weak, soft, influenced, you know, overly influenced guy and they bring him in for questioning about this huge crime that has happened. And he keeps telling them, you, you got to find Kaiser Soze. He is the leader and Kaiser Soze is like this legendary, a mythical, organized crime mob boss that people aren't even sure if he really exists or not. And he just keeps telling the detectives, you got to find him. He's the guy you're after. He's the guy you want. And they just keep like telling him, he, he doesn't even exist. We don't even believe in him. He, he, we, stop trying to, you know, stop trying to send us down a, a rabbit hole. And they finally let him go because they don't get the information that they want out of him. And I can't describe it all, but as the final scene of that movie plays out, what, be, what is revealed to those who are watching the movie is that low-level guy who seemed like so weak and soft and influenced. He was Kaiser Soze. He was in their, he was in their presence. He was in the, the, the interrogation room the whole time. And he kept saying, you need to find this guy. And they were like, we don't even believe he exists. And then he walked out of there and left. And he was the guy they were looking for. And that is exactly what is happening in this text. The Sadducees are like, we don't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus is like, I am the resurrection. And they're like, we can't see it. And he is saying the same thing to you and I today. We are desperate to know that there is something after death. We are terrified of what death means and what it can bring. And Jesus is standing in front of us today. He is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And the promise of God's word is that for every single one of us who will say, I am a sinner, I am separated from God, I cannot save myself and I need you, Jesus, to do it for me. For all of us who will bow our knee before him and make him Lord of our life, for all of us who will throw ourselves at his feet and say, I am helpless without your forgiveness, your mercy and your grace, the promise is that he will lavish it upon us. And not only that, but when we make him Lord of our lives, you know what scripture tells us? He puts his spirit inside of us. The same one who in his power resurrected from the dead puts that same power inside of you and I. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Amen. If Jesus is the resurrection, when we come to him and he puts his spirit inside of us, we become the resurrection too. Do you believe this? We are all living in death's shadow. We all have to make peace with death in order to live this life. And here's what I just want to tell you before we finish. Give them something more than your boat to talk about at your funeral. Give them more than your job. Give them more than your kids. Give them more than your hobbies and your accomplishments and your favorite sports team. 
Give them Jesus to talk about at your funeral. There was a famous preacher in the 1800s. His name was D.L. Moody. He famously said one time in a sermon, he said, one day you will read in the paper that D.L. Moody has died. He said, don't you believe it for a second? Because in that moment, I will be more alive than I have ever been. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray. God, we're just humbled and awed by who you are. We, uh, we are like We are like ships adrift on the sea with no sail and no rudder. And yet you offer to come into our lives and take over and give us direction and purpose and hope and a resurrected life. I pray, God, if there is somebody here today who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that this might be the day that they make the decision to say, I cannot save myself. Jesus, I need you to do it for me. And I thank you, God, in the midst of all the garbage that we experience and witness as we walk through this world that is so marred by sin and death, that we have a hope that one day it will not be this way, that one day you will make all things right, that you will wipe every tear from our eye. I pray that you would allow us to live with that hope always in sight. Help us to show it to others. And God, as we prepare to exit this building for the last time, we just wanna praise you for your faithfulness once again. We thank you for how good you have been to us, how good you are to us, and how good we know you will continue to be to us. Thank you for taking us on this adventure. Thank you for the things we are gonna learn about you and about us. Thank you for the way you're gonna change and mature and grow our church. Thank you for how you have just provided every step of the way. Pray all of these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll now have uh, one more song. This is a time to, to respond to God. If his spirit has been prompting you in any way, this is a moment to, to speak with him, talk with him. Uh, commune with him or simply worship him and I'll be back up in a moment for the benediction would you stand with me and let's sing together and blessed assurance Jesus is mine oh what a foretaste of glory Salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. And this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior. Stop.
Jesus is your Lord and Savior, Amen. and you want to talk to someone about what that means, uh, please find me after the service. we got some of our elders down here in the front row. Find them. Talk to a neighbor. Uh, we would love to talk to you about what that means and, and how you can enter into the family of God. Uh, one thing I meant to mention earlier, sorry, I know there's a lot of announcements today. Uh, Junior has another commitment on Sunday afternoons. And so while we're at Bridges, he's just gonna be working behind the scenes to coordinate worship for us. So I just wanna give you that heads up now. We will miss him greatly at Bridges. I miss you guys. 
But he'll, he'll be back with us when we get back to Sunday mornings in September uh, at the JCC. Remember, uh, big, give, big giveaway uh, in the chapel after service. Uh, next week, virtual service. No in-person service next week. Following week, Bridges Community Church, Los Altos, 4.30 p.m. Last thing, uh, our worship team needs to do some stuff in the sanctuary after service. So if you could all exit quickly from the sanctuary after service, that would be a huge help. Now receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You are loved, you are prayed for, and you are sent.